This podcast is being brought to you by the Priority Health Academy. You can visit us at priority-health.us. Okay, um, good evening, folks. Uh, this, this is J.P. Salibi with the Carolina Holistic Medicine, and I've got a special guest today with me for this podcast. And um, I'll, j- I'll let uh, Christopher introduce himself. Hey, uh, Chris Jackman, and full-time nurse practitioner at the Mount Pleasant office, um, and uh, we are going to talk to you guys about Lyme disease today. It's probably uh, your favorite topic, right, Dr. Sleepy? Yeah, it's one of my favorites, one of my two favorite topics. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, um, and, and we're seeing a lot of it, so. We are, we are seeing tons of it, and uh, maybe for good reason, so um We'll get this uh, slideshow going. I'm going to just manually advance to the next slide. Um, I would like to say that um, we have um, a good team of practitioners here, and we're um, kind of aligning ourselves with some organizations. Um, I was an early member of uh, ILADS, International Lyman Associated Disease Society, um, and I trained and did my preceptorship under Dr. Richard Horowitz, who was one of the founding fathers of that organization. And uh, the knowledge I've gained through working with Horowitz and uh, Dr. Moorcroft and many of the others um, in that organization, I am passing along to my uh, other providers that work with me. Yeah. And um, now, uh, yeah, we're, we're all kind of trying to get our certification here. So I know I had submitted my, my uh, application to be part of ILAD. So um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it, it's an interesting topic. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sponsoring my, uh, my providers to become uh, active members in the organization. I remember my first uh, four day scientific um, conference was back in, I think 2013 or 2014. And, uh, it was a big eye opener. I walked in thinking I, you know, I've been practicing medicine over 20 years. I may have seen it all, but uh, you know, the, the first day, the sort of introduction day for uh, the fundamentals program, <clears throat> I walked in and they were talking about, um, you know, co-infections and biofilm and persister cells. And I'm like, well, what is this? I mean, it's like, <laughs> are they speaking Mandarin Chinese to me? Uh, you know, so I expect that, uh, Chris, you're going to have the same kind of uh, first experience. And then, uh, you know, by the end of the conference, I was definitely hooked. I mean, I was like, this is something that needs to be dealt with. It's, it's an epidemic. Um, and um, Horowitz uh, has written a third book, kind of a book of fiction about the future uh, of the planet. And he talks about with global warming, there's at least three um, species that are going to increase in volume and number. And those are mosquitoes, fleas, and ticks. And those are denoted on this little sign here in the woods. While we see a diminish uh, of um, organisms like frogs, tree frogs, and polar bears, and other species that are becoming extinct or near extinct. Um, And so the ones that will transmit uh, Borrelia bongarfii um, or any of the Borrelias sensulato, which means the, um, the whole of that genus. So um, let me advance to the next slide. Um, now, uh, Chris, did you, um, are you aware of this new, new piece in the British Medical Journal that came out a, a couple of weeks, a weeks ago? Yeah, you had, you had talked to me about this. Um, yeah. yeah, so it's, 
it's uh we've had a couple articles come out it seems like maybe lime is catching on a little bit more than um than we've you know seen in the past so people are starting to become a little more aware of how how important and how how much is impacting um, people all over the uh, all over the world really right yeah so this was a recent study that was published in uh uh the global um uh health of the british medical journal so it's a subset and it was published um, online first uh and it caught the the major news uh, agencies because it was reported in cnn and npr and fox news and it was basically a study that was a meta-analysis of uh, a number of other studies uh, it incorporated um, uh, over 160,000 patients. Uh, they used a traditional sort of Western blot. They skipped the ELISA. They went right to the Western blot for serology testing. Um, and it showed, um, you know, a, a problem, especially with men over the age of 50. Uh, but this um, particular study, um, it was mostly of Western and Central Europeans and uh, Western Asian populations. Um, and uh, it involved uh, a subset. They didn't even come to the Western Hemisphere. So this was all, you know, Eastern Hemisphere, old old world stuff. Yeah. And they used a traditional Western blot. And Chris, tell me how how effective that Western blot is. It's it's not effective at all. I mean, I guess you could you could say maybe forty percent effective, and that would be generous. Right. So a lot of false uh, negatives. Uh, yeah. you, can, you can rule in Lyme with a positive Western blot, but you cannot rule it out with a negative. Just, that's, and if, if somebody interprets it that way, they're very mistaken. Um, and we as uh, LLMDs, Lyme literate medical doctors, and I should say that should be LL uh, providers, you know, Lyme literate providers, <laughs> uh, know that it's pretty unreliable. But even given that fact, um, they looked at 137 studies um, and uh, like I said, near 160,000 people. And they came up with a value of about 14.5% of the population testing positive, either having acute or having had Lyme disease based on the antibody titers. And, uh, you know, years ago, the CDC used to report uh, in America about 30,000 or so, give and take a few hundred new cases of Lyme disease each year. And then I believe it was uh, 2000, maybe 18, uh, the number jumped from 30,000 to 300,000 new cases just in one year. And we, we know that's impossible. So they were pretty much underreporting. And ILADS feels that the numbers are much greater, somewhere like um, maybe 600 to 800,000 new cases in America alone of, of uh, Lyme disease. So, well, yeah, you look at you look at these numbers. It's fourteen point five percent using a 40 percent effective test. So, I mean, you you can easily double that number right. pretty safely. So, I mean, we're looking at probably close to thirty yeah. percent of the of the world population probably has yeah. Lyme, which would match up to what we see in the clinic every day. Right. Yeah, I'm thinking. 30, maybe even 40, maybe even closer to 50%. You could, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you could make that case. Uh, yeah, we could make a case for that. Um, yeah. And there's a difference between acute Lyme and chronic Lyme. You know, acute Lyme is fairly easily identified. It's kind of a summer flu. People are febrile. They have this malaise. They have sometimes a rash. 
uh, oftentimes a bullseye lesion, which is pathognomonic, and only about 33% of people present with that. Uh, but if you have sort of a summer flu-like illness and it's not the right time of the year for flu, uh, you can test and sometimes testing during that phase, you'll, you'll get a positive test. And it's rather uh, a small window to, to treat, uh, maybe two weeks to four weeks, if you can get them on like Doxy or Seftin for 60 days, not, not 21, not 28, but a full 60 days to eradicate. And you can eradicate that Borrelia and possibly any co-infections that come along with it. Uh, but if it drifts into chronic, that's where this window of opportunity is missed and it yeah. goes into a chronic phase. And uh, Chris, you've seen patients in the clinic how long have some of these folks had this uh, chronic? Oh, you know, so there's, there's been patients that are in their 50s and 60s that report tick bites when they're 10 years old. You know, I mean, so they've probably been living with this for 40 or 50 years. Uh, you know, maybe a dormant case, maybe, you know, slight symptoms. But yeah, I mean, they've had it their whole life. And I've had patients, too, that after you finally diagnose them with Lyme, they say, you know, maybe my mom had Lyme, you know, she had a lot of the same symptoms as me. So who knows, they might have been born with it. And, you know, and it could have been sitting dormant in their system their entire life. So right. that's the that's the issue with the, the chronic Lyme is, you know, everyone knows about the bullseye rash and the, you know, acute Lyme phase and, and being treated for it. But, uh, you know, you talk to these patients and they have history of tick bites that have all the symptoms. And you say, have you ever been tested for Lyme? You know, oh, my doctor told me that, you know, I, I can't have Lyme because, you know, my tick bite was decades ago. Right. So we're fighting that stereotype. Right. Or you're not in the right part of the country. You know, you're in the yeah. South. Yeah. That's another one that um, we love to get. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're in Florida. You live most of your life in Florida. How could you possibly have Lyme disease? And, um, you know, it's, it's something that maybe symptoms initially are, are so subtle and not even strong enough for where you'd go see your doctor about it, like an arthritis or a behavioral changes. Um, and then you, sometimes you get this history of a, a grown woman, um, a 40 year old female who's probably had Lyme her whole life. And she's got teenage kids with behavioral issues. Mm -hmm. Um, and we know that folks with, um, chronic Lyme disease, there's about a 50% uh, instance of them having neuropsychiatric manifestations. Um, neuro being things like Bell's palsy or twitches or involuntary movements or a Parkinson-like gait or, you know, tremors. Uh, and the psychiatric being things like anxiety, depression, and even like a schizophrenic-like picture. So um, Chris, is there an ICD-10 code for chronic Lyme disease? There's not. There's not. That's, no. that's very interesting. <laughs> it is. It's sad, isn't it? I mean, that, uh, that we can see, you know, close to 30% of our patients have chronic Lyme, but we can't, we can't officially diagnose them with it. Right. So th there's a di there's ICD-10, there are a couple of ICD-10 codes for acute Lyme. Yeah. And, uh, but not for chronic Lyme disease or post acute Lyme syndrome, as some people refer to it, or um, post acute treatment of Lyme, uh, but uh, chronic Lyme disease or MSEDS, multiple system infectious disease syndrome, um, overlaps with things like CIRS, chronic inflammatory response syndrome, or MCAS, 
which mast cell activation. And a lot of these um, acronyms are almost the overlap. They're similar symptomatology. And if you do scales or screening tests like a Horowitz questionnaire, you get same elevated numbers. Uh, but without an ICD-10, insurance doesn't recognize it. It doesn't quote unquote exist and they don't have to pay for it. So the patients uh, wind up reaping huge medical bills that aren't covered by their insurance. And that's really sad and it needs to change. So yeah, I, and, 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 that's the, and that's why I think patients put off coming to us for so long is because they keep thinking, well, eventually I'll get fixed um, and I'm using my insurance until they hit their wits end and they finally say, you know what, I need to get better. So they come to us and we're left with the, you know, the task to try to fix what no one's been able to help, you know, for decades on these people. Um, and it's sad. I wish they could come to us much sooner and I wish we could be able to, to do more, but we're handcuffed by the system, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. A lot of times they get drawn in from things on that appear on the internet or the web that are very appealing that um, uh, actually uh, purport a cure. And these people are frustrated. They've been to 10 to 15 different doctors. Sometimes mm -hmm. the last two or three have been psychiatry. Uh, they yeah. on a plethora of different meds. Some have idiosyncratic reactions like the antidepressants make them more depressed. Yeah. Seizures make them seize more. So it has this opposite effect. They get very frustrated and they get, they're easy targets for people on the internet that will, um, will advertise a, a quick fix cure, but you know, they're not cheap. Sometimes they're anywhere from 70,000 to a hundred thousand dollars for like an all inclusive. And some of them are overseas. People will travel um, outside of the country to get these therapies. Um, and yeah. diagnostics can be all over the place, but, um, you know, there are a few that, um, we like to do on folks and, and Chris, will you kind of go over some of the diagnostics we use in the, uh, in the office? Yeah. You know, the first thing that we'll typically do, if I, if I have a patient come in and they, it's the first visit and they kind of, they're reporting a bunch of symptoms that are, you know, that make me think Lyme, but, they're skeptical or they have other things going on. I'll usually a CD 57 is kind of the first step. It, you can kind of get it with, with their general labs. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not a great test, but sometimes we get that number to come back and it jumps out as, as, Oh, they definitely have Lyme, but I feel like more so than not, it's, it comes back and we're kind of on the fence with it. You know, it's, it's not, a, it's not the perfect test. Right. Um, and then you can also do the Western blot, but we already talked about how, how poor that is. So, um, you know, those are usually ones we start with when, when I'm, when I'm not a hundred percent convinced they have Lyme, but I, I want to stick my feelers out. Um, and then after that, we get into some more, you know, uh, more diagnostic tests, but more expensive at that point. Right. So the CD 57 is the, uh, human natural killer cell. It's type of white blood cell. We see they are derived from CD8 cells. And uh, when they kind of mature, they're, they're usually in predominance for certain illnesses or cancers. For instance, CD4 is usually associated with HIV infections. And you can see a drop in CD4 counts and an elevated um, viral load in folks that are transitioning from HIV positive to AIDS. Um, CD56 and 57 are usually associated with Lyme or tick-borne illness. Uh, the C4A is a complement test. Um, there's C4 and C4A and C3. 
Um, and sometimes we look at the ratios between those, but uh, that can be both lime or tick-borne and also mold. So a mold exposure or, or mold illness is, uh, will raise the C4A. Yeah, those and sometimes they, run together and make, can make things a little tricky. Right. Yeah, they overlap and some of the symptoms are the same. Yeah. Um, inflammatory markers, we use routinely amyloperoxidase or MPO can be elevated when there's a flare. Although I've seen perfectly normal panels of inflammatory markers in the throes of, of, of a pretty severe Lyme flare-up. So yeah, I gone. just saw one. I just saw one of those today. Patient yep. screaming Lyme, but all her inflammatory markers were normal. And I was right. trying to explain that, that it, you know, it doesn't mean yeah. you don't have Lyme. Trust me. Yeah. So it, it's, it's not a reliable test. And we're actually seeing that with COVID too. Uh, acute COVID and long haulers. Uh, we thought we could rely on inflammatory markers to lead us down the, the rosy path to uh, making a diagnosis, but it kind of um, it turned, uh, it turned out to be the opposite sometimes. Uh, but people look inflamed. You look at them and they're just dragging. Uh, they've got brain fog. They've got uh, aches and pains all over. And there's just general malaise. And you're like, well, there's something definitely wrong. So IGNX, um, a West Coast lab on uh, developed... Um, with some of the founding fathers of ILADS um, and some of the scientists at that um, lab, uh, something called an immunoblot. It's a type of advanced Western blot, and that's pretty reliable um, for checking for Borrelia species. And they use more than just one. Uh, Quest and LabCorp use basically one strain. Uh, Vibrant Labs kind of broke on the scene recently, um, and they have very nicely put together um, lab panels and, and printouts that are color coded and are very easy to read. I can't say that for IGNX. IGNX are kind of hard to read. They're text heavy and it's, it's just black and white. Um, and then there's red labs in Belgium. Uh, we don't use them just because we have to send the samples overseas. Uh, so those are the basic ones, but the one that's not mentioned here is the Horowitz questionnaire, which was a validated questionnaire. Richard Horowitz borrowed that from Dr. Berscano and um, tweaked it out a bit and then did a clinical trial to validate it in a peer-reviewed journal back, I wanna say it was late 2016. And uh, so that's a validate, valid tool to use to make a diagnosis, especially when you have scores that are in excess of 62. Um, and then there's- The nice, the nice thing about the Horowitz is, is it's free, obviously. Um, and we can kind of have the patients keep doing it, you know, as, as treatment goes on and kind of verify that we're moving in the right direction. So what's nice is, you know, with these other tests, you know, you're not going to be doing, um, you know, blood tests, testing for Lyme four or five times throughout six months, but like you can do a before and after Horowitz questionnaire and, uh, and kind of validate to the patient that we're making progress, which is, which always helps, helps their mental, mental state and, and uh, makes us feel like we're moving in the right direction. Right. So uh, let's move on to therapy a little bit. And sometimes we bypass the diagnostics and we challenge people with therapy. Uh, sometimes we're looking for a Herxheimer reaction. Sometimes we're looking for just them getting better. Sometimes we get a history that uh, they've had Lyme. They've been feeling bad for like maybe six years and they had a dental procedure uh, tooth extraction and they were on amoxicillin for a week and they felt better. Um, and then as soon as the amoxicillin was done, uh, they kind of relapsed back into their previous state. Um, oftentimes we hear of them taking antibiotics and they have a, a pretty bad Herxheimer reaction. 
and they think they may be allergic to that antibiotic. Uh, there's a place for antibiotics and it's all over the place. Uh, everything from things like doxycycline to macrolides uh, to uh, ceftins and cephalosporins to amoxicillin to cover the different phases or, uh, you know, of, of Lyme and the co-infections like Bartonella, Babesia, um, Ehrlichia, things like that, that are co-infections. There's some eight to 11 sort of uh, co-infections that you can get from tick bite. Some of them are fatal. Uh, Powassan virus, for instance, and uh, some others um, can wreak havoc. And of course, there's Rocky Mountain spotted fever and um, Stari, which is the you know southern uh, uh, tick uh, with a rash, um, and it's you know tick, Texas tick. Um, but we like to at least hit people initially, especially the chronics, with uh, herbals. They're gentle. Uh, there's less collateral damage, and um, I'll, I'll let. Um, Chris, talk about the the couple that we we start folks on right off the bat. Yeah, um, you know, and, and our patients are typically thrilled to find out when they have Lyme. The first thing is like, now do I have to take antibiotics? And they love to hear that, you know, we tend to use your uh, protocol, which is herbals to start off. So we start off with Banderol and Cemento, which are um, two herbal tinctures or droplets, uh, liquids, and um and we kind of go low and slow. We start them with a drop, you know, one drop in the morning, two drops in the evening and keep increasing their, uh, the amount of drops that they're drinking until they get up to about 30 drops, 20 to 30. Um, I've been doing 30 with most of my patients. Um, I feel like they tend to do better at the higher dose and if they can tolerate it without herxing too bad, I get them up to 30 and, uh, keep them on that for about three months. And I feel like you know, after that three months, we might not get people into remission after three months of Banderol and Cemento, but we, uh, you know, make a major dent into their symptoms in that first three months with these two herbals. Uh, and, and then at that point, you know, like we say, you know, if you could say from a zero to a hundred, you know, how do you feel? Uh, most people, you know, they're 80, 90%. And if you would have asked them three months before when they were feeling like garbage at, you know, 50, 40%, you know, they're like, yeah, I'll take 80% any day of the week. Um, and, uh, and then tweaks can get them up, but yeah, the banner on cemento seem to be, those are, those are life changers for people with chronic Lyme. Right. And that's, that's taken from the, uh, the Cowden protocol, uh, the Cowden protocol in and of itself, the whole protocol is pretty complex with multiple different uh, tinctures, uh, but the two that we picked, and for good reason, um, were actually uh, published in a peer-reviewed journal of alternative medicine by researcher uh, Dr. Eva Sapi and her team at the University of Connecticut. Uh, she's a Lyme researcher, and uh, she compared in vitro uh, the kill rate of Banderol and Cemento uh, against or versus doxycycline and ceftin. And the kill rate was as, as good or better without the side effects, obviously. Uh, sometimes we have to blend in others like ivermectin or alinea nitrosoxanide. Uh, sometimes we have to blend in things like the macrolides like azithromycin and liquid mepron when we have a hard case of uh, Babesia, for, for example. So it's not just herbals by themselves or antibiotics. Sometimes it's a blend. It's true integrative medicine. We're integrating the Eastern and Western uh, philosophies of treating uh, illness. 
And of course, we also want to enhance the uh, body's army. So you use immune enhancements, uh, usually um, they're herbals uh, or medicinal fractions for mushrooms uh, that enhance the immune system. And you give mitochondrial support. Um, you can use things like LDN or low-dose naltrexone. And then when the brain herxes, you get Herxheimer's uh, reactions uh, with an increase of quinolic acid, which is a neuroirritant. You can stomp out that fire with things like uh, synapsin, uh, with things like uh, skullcap, Chinese and Japanese skullcap, and um, other interventions. Um, but you have to consider this a kind of a long-term marathon run, not a sprint race. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> there's, there's something called the um, Herxheimer, Jeresh-Herxheimer reaction, or Herxing for short. That's the kind of the slang that the Lyme community gives it. And I'll let uh, Chris talk a little bit about what Herxing is. Yeah, so, you know, the herxine is, is kind of a good and bad, you know, it's, um, it's kind of inevitable when you have Lyme, but, you know, nobody wants, everyone, that's what everyone's nervous about when they start the Lyme protocol is, you know, am I going to herx? So, so the idea is when we start giving these tinctures and they start attacking these spiralite bacteria and killing them, uh, you know, they tend to explode. And then your immune system's rushing in to try to, uh, to clean it out as these are exploding. Um, you know, you can get, uh, your immune system be overwhelmed and, and you can start herxing when you can start getting side effects, you know, headaches, um, dizziness, uh, and a lot of people say they feel really sick, you know, it can't get out of bed, not feeling right. well. Um, it's, the it's good news be, uh... is. Chris, it's usually the, the symptoms that they're, they come in with. If they come in with joint yeah, pain, or right. heart palpitations, uh, or a mood disorder, uh, when they herx, it, it sort of exacerbates that. And exacerbates their old symptoms, yeah. Right. They may think they're getting worse. So yeah. we have to you know, do a bit of education and say, well, you know, maybe that's a Herxheimer reaction classic, and you're not getting worse. You're actually in, improving. And sometimes we use that when we challenge people. Uh, with some tinctures or with some antibiotics, we look for that little Herxheimer reaction as affirmation that something's working uh, the right way. Yeah, so that's what I try to tell my patients is when they're, when they say they're complaining that their headaches are getting worse, or their brain fog seems to be worse, or their, their gut, you know, their stomach's been hurting, saying, you know, that's a positive, if you, if you never felt any symptoms and you, you went through this whole protocol and never felt anything, that means we probably missed, you know, missed the boat and, and you're not treating anything. You know, if, if you're, if you're feeling these symptoms, you know, it means it's working. So it's the good and bad of it, but, uh, nobody, everyone's always worried about herxine, but it's, it's unfortunately, you know, it's a, uh, it's something that needs to happen if we want to, if we want to get you into remission. Right, right. Those cytokine storms, we're seeing those really, uh, it's in the news now because that's what's happening with acute COVID. You get this in viral infection and it's not the virus that's really hurting people. It's that following, you know, several days after uh, with this big cytokine storm, which then destroys some lung tissue or other organs. And uh, that leads to huge amounts of inflammation. Uh, which destroys tissue. So this, this cytokine storm, people might be aware of that terminology related to acute COVID infection. COVID, yeah. uh, but we see, we saw that for 20 years in advance 
uh, with, uh, with Lyme disease. So in this slide, we see the Townsend letter um, in um, Alternative Medicine Journal. Of, this was July of 2010 that this piece was study uh, was published uh, by Eva Sapi and her crew. Um, and we see some treatments on the board there, cementobanderol uh, and cryptolepis and more of the traditional antibiotics, uh, pharmaceuticals like doxycycline and ceftin. So let me advance to the, the final page and then we'll stop the screen share. But, you know, at Carolina Holistic Medicine, um, you know, uh, with my background and my training and then my teaching of my staff. So all of our providers are well-versed and up to speed on the treatment of this tick, these tick-borne um, illnesses. So there's some um, contact information if any, anyone out there is looking for some help with uh, any of the tick-borne uh, illnesses, please give us a holler. And um, I'll get back to our two-person view here. So I've got some questions that have come in um, and uh, I'll throw them out there. Um, first question is what is referred to as Borrelia sensulato? And that's just a term that's used to um, describe the whole, the umbrella of all the different species and strains. So you have the genus and species. The genus would be Borrelia, the species would be uh, Bundorfia. And Dr. Bundorfia is the one who identified that spirochete back in the day in the late 70s, I believe, when a concerned mother in Lyme, Connecticut was uh, concerned about her sick kids and the neighborhood's sick kids, and they couldn't find a reason for this illness, this rash and fever. And so she implored the Centers for Disease Control and they sent up a rheumatologist because uh, most of the complaints were arthritic complaints. So there's this rash, but with arthritis. So who takes care of our arthritis is a rheumatologist. And uh, he was an epidemiologist from Atlanta that they sent up and after um, investigating, they found out that this was actually a tick-borne spirochete. So had it been infectious disease, we might've been further along in our, in our, our research and treatment. Uh, but that's what that term means. Um, another question came in about uh, this, the, the, the ticks. Is it the only ticks? Is it the black deer tick? or are there other ticks and insects that can transmit? So the answer is that almost any arthropod can transmit this, uh, these infections. So spiders, fleas, mosquitoes, uh, and of course ticks, all kinds of ticks, black leg deer, deer ticks, dog ticks, soft ticks. And within the tick family, there's, there's the, the larva, which is about the size of a poppy seed. So you may not even notice it on you. Uh, and it doesn't have to feed for very long. There are studies that show maybe four hours is all it takes. And if they're irritated, if you squeeze them or try to remove a tick that's engorged on your skin the wrong way, you're actually pushing more of their um, body, the, the, um, those microbes that are in their, their abdomen into your skin. Uh, and then there's the nymph stage. So the larva stage actually has um, six legs, so three on each side. And as it matures into the nymph phase, it actually grows two more. Um, and then as the adult, the adult is about the size of a sesame seed if it's not engorged. And the, the, the mom, the, the females are a little bit bigger than the males. Now, once they're engorged, they can be, you know, the size of a grape. You've probably seen those before on like a, a, a large animal. And um, it's interesting to note that the tick behaves differently when it's infected or not infected with a Borrelia. So if it's an uninfected tick, 
it typically is more kind and slow and not as aggressive. And if you take it to Antarctica, it will die, it'll freeze to death. If the tick is infected with Borrelia, um, its behavior changes. It becomes more aggressive. It walks faster. And the two top pinchers, if you will, will extend forward and they will climb to the end of a blade of grass and wait for you to brush by either you or an animal or anything and they'll grab a hold. Uh, if you take that tick to Antarctica, it'll survive. It won't freeze to death. So the, the Borrelia organism acts as kind of an antifreeze. It's very bizarre. I always wonder, I always ask myself uh, if this, these things have come from, you know, the Andromeda galaxy. It's really strange. And well, that's what's scary can, about it, right? Is, I mean, the, yeah. the, these, these ones that can infect you, they're, they're kind of, you know, you can't get rid of them. They're, they're, right. they're yeah, they're like superheroes. And, and then there's, and then there's these biofilms that develop uh, to protect themselves. And then there's what they call Babesia uh, microti and um, Babesia ducanti, two different species that we see uh, in the States. And they have what they call nests. So they kind of nest together and actually work in conjunction with other organisms to kind of work symbiotically to make your life miserable. Right. Um, so, uh, so Chris, why don't you talk about some of the things we do? Cause another question came in, it said, uh, you know, what do you do when you herx? You want to yeah. So, more? so the issue is, you know, if you're coming in because you have a headache or brain fog and, um, or you come in because you have joint pain, you're going to take the, you know, our herbals and you're probably going to do worse at the beginning. You know, you're going to get a week or two in your treatment and you're going to feel like it's making you feel worse. You're going to have exacerbation of your symptoms. You're going to, um, your, your joint pain is going to be worse. Your headache's going to be worse. Your brain fog, you're going to feel like you're going in the wrong direction. Um, you know, we, we can slow down treatment. I mean, and try to take you a little more gradually, but you know, we really just try to tell people you try to deal with the symptoms as best you can and try to push through because the sooner we get you to, you know, therapeutic dose and we can move this along, the, the better you're going to feel. So, you know, having people slow down sometimes work, but I've had a lot of patients that say, you know, I just kind of push right through it because, you know, I needed to get past this this phase and get right. myself feeling better. So, you know, there, we, we have herbals we can use, um, you know, Japanese knotwood and, um, and it can try to help you with, with the symptoms you're feeling, but a lot of times it's just kind of, you know, part of the game, unfortunately. Yeah. So some things as simple as, uh, you know, um, uh, pure water with a squeeze of natural lemon, the lemon, yeah. A little lime or lemon. Um, people sometimes, um, ease it off with uh, Epsom salts bath. Uh, some people like a sauna. You have to be careful with the uh, fire infrared saunas. You don't want to do too aggressive. Too long. Yeah. Right. And then, yeah, I mean, you're trying with... to, you're trying to calm inflammation, right? I mean, that's kind of mm -hmm. your, whatever you can do to try to relax your body, reduce stress, um, calm inflammation is, is probably going to help reduce the symptoms, but um, you know, it's probably not going to be one magic thing that, that gets rid of all the symptoms because it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a part of the treatment. Right. Um, the last question was, um, what you mentioned LDN, what is LDN and how do oh, that's, you use it? That's another one of your favorites, Dr. Sleevey. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you want to take a crack at it or, uh, yeah, yeah. LDN. I mean, 
you know, without getting into the whole story of LDN, you know, as it was originally used, you know, for uh, opioid treatment, you know, for people to stop taking opioids and, um, you know, and as your story, as your, as you taught me, you know, they, these, these people are taking the op- opioids, uh, taking LDN so they wouldn't use opioids. And then all of a sudden they're coming back and seeing their doctors and their MS is, is going away and their cancers are going away and their, you know, autoimmune diseases are disappearing and they couldn't really figure out why. And they're taking these at, you know, about 400 milligrams, this, you know, the naltrexone for opioid addiction. And, uh, so all of a sudden, you know, Hey, let's start figuring out why, why all these autoimmune diseases and cancers are being healed. And they start looking into naltrexone and realizing that, you know, it's, uh, it's healing these people. It's not just stopping them from opioid addiction, but it's actually, um, you know, reducing their autoimmune disease and their cancers and their HIV and all that stuff. So giving it as a low dose, which is what we do now has, it, you know, works in a total, total different way. And right. it works on several different part, you know, several different body systems. You know, we, we see positive, um, symptom relief in GI system, in the brain, um, overall inflammation. Uh, you know, it's, it's good for, you know, for probably five or six different disease processes that we, that we, um, treat, if not more, you know, so it's, uh, you know, you, uh, you've done some interviews and they call it a miracle drug. And I know you hate that, had hate that term, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's a pretty amazing drug and we like to use it as a, as a therapy, you know, uh, adjunctive therapy, um, while treating thyroid disease, while treating Lyme disease, um, while treating cancers. And, uh, it, it does a great job. People notice benefit pretty early on in, uh, in treatment, even at, you know, one milligram, a lot of people are saying, you know, they're noticing they're feeling better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, the LDN is a whole hour long lecture and um, yes, I just gave it the other least. day. So when that gets um, posted live uh, as an archive, I'll try to post that on our blog as well. Uh, but in a nutshell, low dose naltrexone and the dosages vary from 0.025 all the way up to six or eight even. Uh, but usually it caps at around four and a half milligrams taken at night works better at night. Vivid dreams is the main side effect of it, but it does have an effect through several mechanisms of action. I don't want to get too technical, but things like OGF and OGF receptors, toll-like receptor four, uh, downregulation. So it, it, it downregulates inflammation and upregulates Which is amazing, like right? yeah. autophagia and uh, apoptosis. So all along, it's uh, getting rid of dead, uh, partially functional cells and uh, increasing uh, some uh, endorphins and enkephalins in the body to help with healing. So um, it's good for healing leaky gut and a lot of autoimmune issues. So we use a lot of that in our Lyme treatments. So there's a lot to it. And it's not sometimes when people come to see us, they're like so laser focused on something like mold or Lyme or heavy metals. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell people, it's like an onion, a very complex onion with lots of layers and lots of skins. And we got to get through that and figure out what all is involved in making them ill. It's usually not just one thing. So uh, with that, I don't want to go over too, too much. Um, I, can't, I guess we're getting close to the time for this uh, 
uh, short webinar. So um, no more questions, just keep uh, posted on our blog and our Facebook page or social media for future um, uh, webinars. And I thank Chris for joining me today. Yeah, time. it was a pleasure. Always love to talk about Lyme and help people. I, I had a patient today who said, "You get, you must love your job. You get to, you get to help people who are in, you know, who are miserable, and you figure out what's wrong with them." I said, "Yeah, it's, it's like being a detective. At, you know, yep. it's very, so, very yeah. rewarding uh, when you have somebody that uh, comes in in a wheelchair and then walks out with a smile on their face uh, a few months later." Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's in, it's, I feel like we see the biggest difference in our patients with Lyme disease. That's like the one disease, Lyme and thyroid, they come in miserable. And then two months later you see them and, and they're totally different people. And it, it makes, it makes you feel like you're doing the right thing when that you see that. Yeah. Okay. Good night y'all. All right. Thanks guys. Bye. If you're interested about learning more about Carolina holistic medicine, you can check out the website at www.carolinaholisticmedicine.com. And you can check out Dr. Salibi's blog at docsalibi.blogspot.com.